Hi, this is Crystal Cyrus from the OOTW podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 177, Unstoppable Movie Review. Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers. This, of course, is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek, how's it going? Great, Chris. How's it going with you tonight? Good. I'm good. I'm always good. That's good to hear. I mean, uh, I'm very happy to say that uh, I got Mm -hmm. my first COVID shot this week. And, uh, you know, I'm glad it was we got to the point where it was if you're over 40 and you want the shot, you can get it. And I wanted it and I got it. So pretty pleased. Most of my peer group is around the same age. So I've been seeing all the posts show up on uh, social media. So we're all getting vaccinated with our first shot. And uh, yeah, we're one step closer to being in a world where we're going to be allowed to travel again and go on vacations and see our favorite sports teams perform live and go to Las Vegas and get on cruise ships and all that stuff. I mean, we're still a way away from there, but uh, this is a first step in that direction. So Mm -hmm. very happy. And take in lots of pop culture, you know, speaking of which, what pop culture have you partaken in this past week, my friend? So I had a chance to watch a few uh, older movies. I mean, older, not that much older. And all I think they're all actually from the 90s now that I'm looking say, at them. Is it older by your definition or older by yeah. my definition? By my Those definition. Two different by things. my definition. Yeah. So... Uh, first one is one of my, we'll call it guilty pleasure movies. It's one of those ones when, whenever it's on TV, I, I kind of have to finish watching it. And it's the birdcage with Robin Williams, oh, yeah, Nathan like Lane. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's one of my wife's all time favorite movies and we watch it together all the time. It's very quotable. It's really funny. Um, yeah, I mean, have it was just the it, original casual fall from the casual fall, I, a long time yeah. ago when I worked at Blockbuster, I rented it one time just so that I could have that context uh, because the birdcage was a relatively new release at the time. But uh, yeah, so we watched the birdcage. It holds up. Uh, well, there's a few things that are little sort of, mm, but by the nineties, it's, it, I thought it was kind of a more progressive movie given when it came out. I mean, some of the, the portrayals and the d- discussion about the uh, gay characters and LGBT, uh, maybe not as, as, uh, I don't want to say politically correct, but not as accurate as maybe it could be or should be if it was remade today. But I really like the way that it, it came out. I think it's a very uh, it's it's certainly funny and I think it's fairly even handed the way it's portrayed. Um, second movie I saw Tremors. Oh, you ever seen yes, Tremors? Yes, it's awesome. Fred Ward from uh, from, from Remo Williams. Remo Williams is in it and Kevin Bacon. It's those worms under the ground and yeah, Peter gross. And it's. It, but it's really yeah, good dad from family yeah, ties yeah, yeah it's really good it, it's really good like it's it's a low budget well it probably wasn't even that low budget but it's like it plays like a low budget mm-hmm. creature feature and i hadn't seen it in a long time and it just were like my wife and i flick it through the channels on the weekend i'm like oh my god tremors is coming on and she's like oh we're not gonna watch that i'm like well let's just leave it here while we think about something better to do and then we started playing on our phones and the movie comes on and the next thing you know 20 minutes have passed we're both riveted by the movie <laughs> it's okay, quite I guess good we'll watch it's this. Quite good. Yeah. It, yeah it was fun it, again it holds up pretty well yeah. given what it is 
Uh, and then the third one is the one I sort of really want to talk about. It's a movie called Sliding Doors from the 90s starring Gwyneth Paltrow. Have you ever seen it? No. Okay, we're definitely going to do this on a movie review in a while because I just watched it, so I don't necessarily want to do it right now, but maybe like six months from now. Gwyneth Paltrow has never looked more beautiful than she does in this movie. Oh, my God. Like, just probably one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen on screen in this movie. She is just uh, wow. I can't I can't describe how awesome she is. And she's talented. She can perform. I mean, a year later, she wins an Oscar for Shakespeare in Love. Mm-hmm. She can act. And this movie is great. The idea is in the first five minutes of the movie, she goes to work. She gets fired. And when she goes to go home to get to catch the subway to go home, she misses the train because literally the sliding doors close in her face. Then you see an alternate version where she actually makes the train and she gets on before the doors close. And then you have two parallel stories happening about how her life is different simply because in one version she caught the train and in one version she didn't. And it's just very clever the way the story is crafted. The story's good. The performances are good. The supporting cast is fantastic. It's it, it's it's really good. I, I hadn't seen it since it first came out in the mid, I guess it's late 90s. I think it's like 97, 98. It is really good. It really held up. And wow, I could not take my eyes off Gwyneth Paltrow. She is spectacularly breathtaking in this film. Nice. And that was it for me. Those were my, I mean, other than the one we're about to talk about, those were the three that I had a chance to watch this week. No, unfortunately, no documentaries. Oh, okay. Um, Derek, okay, so I have something. I usually don't. I usually just gloss over and I go right to my dumb dad joke and we move on. But I actually have something because I actually had an opportunity this week to watch something. So I have a question for you, Derek. What do you think of when I say the Bee Gees? The Bee Gees? I think yeah. of disco. Disco, right? So Yeah. Saturday re- Fever. Yeah. Staying Alive. Okay. The reason I ask is this past week, I actually watched a documentary. <gasps> For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries. So this documentary that I watched is called How to Mend a Broken Heart. And it was a documentary about the Bee Gees. So until I watched this, whenever I thought of the Bee Gees, I used to think of, like you, staying alive, you know, and disco. And I and I always think, oh, they always, I always think they always had that slow song, too, that how deep is your love. Yeah. But that was pretty much it. That's all I thought oh, no, no. that they did. Yeah. And boy, was I wrong. So they actually formed in 1958. And they were writing songs and singing together as a group all through the 60s and 70s. And they had a pile of hits. And... On the documentary, they kept playing songs, and I was like, oh, I know that song. They did that? Oh, they did that, too? Like, it was, I was just getting blown away. And so it was really cool. They're in this recording studio, and they're recording an album. It was like in the mid-70s or something. And they were doing this song called Nights on Broadway, and they're recording it. And the producer turns to them, and he's like, we need something in this song. We need some, we need some background sounds, like, to punch it up. And so... Barry Gibb starts singing like some la-la-las or something like that. But he uses a falsetto. And everybody in the studio just froze. And even he couldn't believe what was coming out of him. And he didn't even know he could sing like that. And the band liked it so much that they decided that they would base their music around this newly discovered falsetto. And it changed music forever. You know? 
And then someone wrote an article for New York Magazine called The Tribal Rituals of the New Saturday Night. And it got optioned. So they were going to make a movie about, you know, the disco scene in New York. So they hired the Bee Gees to write some songs for it. And it became the highest grossing album of all time. And that was back in 1978. Like a soundtrack, you know, which is unheard of at the time to become, you know, that successful. Um, At one point, they had six of the top 10 songs on the charts. And they started ranking up there with the Beatles in terms of all this record-breaking success they had. And as you know, Derek, when anything gets too popular, there's copycats, you know, and knockoffs. And the same happened with disco. And somebody, I can't remember who it was, came out with this horrific song called Disco Duck. You remember that one, Oh, Derek? yeah, it was, uh, wasn't it Rick Dees who did the Rick Dees Weekly Top 40? I think that's who it was. Oh, you might be right, you know? So the song Disco Duck comes out and then that, you know, led to a bunch of backlash. And there was this DJ in Chicago. He kind of reminded me of like Rush Limbaugh who like spun yeah. records. And he organized this hate rally at Comiskey Park in Chicago for people to come and burn disco records. But the thing is, you know, disco started out as, it was like a music form in the black and the gay community. And it turned out that uh, people came to this rally, not just to burn disco records, but they were burning R&B albums and pretty much anything that were made by black artists. And, you know, as we've learned over the past few years, you know, once again, when you peddle in hate, it brings out some of the worst people in society. And it basically caused the Bee Gees to have to go into hiding because they got all these death threats, right? Because they were the forefront of disco, yeah. right? And so they had to go into hiding and they couldn't sing. And as much as they love singing, their real passion was actually songwriting. So yeah, I was going to say, I'm pretty sure they have a, a tremendous catalog of songs they've written for other people. They did. So they started writing all these songs for other artists, like songs like If I Can't Have You and Grease from the movie, that song was them. Yep. And Islands in the Stream by Dolly Parton, Dolly and, Kenny Parton and Kenny Rogers. They Love wrote that. That, that doesn't surprise me at all. It was just fascinating. And I just didn't realize how big and how popular and how influential that they were as singers and songwriters. It was an awesome documentary. So it's called How to Mend a Broken Heart. It was on HBO. It was just so good. Yeah, my, I think my oh. wife and my brother had both watched it. It came out a couple months ago, and I think they both watched it right away. And I'm like, I enjoy the Bee Gees music, but I have to be in the right mood. Like like a lot of people, disco's not my thing. But I like when you're in the right mood, you want dancey music. You want something with the beat. Like when I'm working out, disco's great. Hip-hop's great. You know, um, because it's it's got that beat to it that you you need if you're if you're working out, you want to keep that pace. So there's definitely a time and a place for it, but it's certainly not the first thing I pull from. So mm-hmm. I sort of went, man, not really my thing. But and after, I, like, I'm not a disco guy. I I've always liked classic rock and stuff. Like mm-hmm. I would not never be a disco guy. But I was just fascinated by their story. And kind of well, and their talent, their right? Down. Yeah, oh, they're yeah, very like, talented. Yeah. Very and it's talented. like even even though I don't necessarily care for what I understand to be the quote, the BG style of music, I can certainly appreciate the talent it takes to do what they did. And I can appreciate the impact they had on the musical arts, uh, given where they were, when they were, what they did, the ups, the downs, 
you know, the the highs of disco and even the whole disco sucks and the 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 thing at in Chicago, like that's all a part of the history of music mm-hmm. and the way music changed in the eighties based on that backlash of disco, even though you may not agree with how everything came together with the whole burning of the records, it caused the art form to change drastically. And I love what it became. I don't necessarily love how and why it became that, but it, it, again, art will be reflective of the time and the culture. And, and so from that point of view, I can certainly appreciate and respect what they did. So maybe I'll have to give it a try. I mean, you know me, I love documentaries and I'm always looking for the next great one. So maybe I'll, uh, I'll put that on my watch list and try and get to it in the next couple of weeks. Well, you've given me lots of ideas for documentaries. So I gave you one. So there, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Another thing that I want to give you. Here's your dad joke of the week. Okay, Derek, since we're doing a movie tonight about a train, I thought I would do a train joke. Okay. Derek, why couldn't the train conductor remember how many trains he derailed last year? Jeez, I have no idea. Because it's hard to keep track. Oh, man. Like, where do you find this garbage? It's hard to keep track. It's hard to keep track. Calm the motion. Calm the motion. Calm the motion. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. He's smoking in the band oh. shirt for you. <laughs> so, I loved it. I thought it was great. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad. Boof from Teen Wolf. Hot as a pistol. Wow. I know. That's pretty amazing. I'm a big Dungeons and Dragons nerd. It's a shock that you never got more girls in high school. <laughs> Calm blue ocean. Calm blue ocean. Calm blue ocean. I don't know. That's a lot to unpack, Chris. I'm going to give a second here. <laughs> All right, Derek. It was over to you this week, and you came up with Unstoppable from 2010 so maybe just we'll get into the movie we're going to get into lots of details of the film tonight um but maybe just to kick off why this movie why do you want me to watch this okay uh, before i sort of get into it directly <clears throat> i want to say i've finally had a chance to go back and listen to the last five or six episodes of our show i usually <clears throat> listen to our show but i like to give it a couple of weeks so that it's not doesn't seem as fresh mm-hmm. um and because i, 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 listen to a I lot, don't i don't really get a chance to go back and listen i just don't have enough time on my hands so what do I we understand. sound like do we sound like a couple of dorks well at least one of us does <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course yeah i have a so, funny feeling it's me <laughs> well hey you draw your own conclusions um <laughs> So I listen to a lot of podcasts. And so if Mm -hmm. I give it a couple of weeks before I go back to listen to our show, I don't want to say it's it's like it's new, but I don't necessarily remember all the nuances, even for the parts that where I was the speaker. It's like, oh, I really said that. And and in some cases, I I get to hear myself sound like an idiot. So Um, but I was interesting that just this week I re-listened to the episode we did about true romance. Mm-hmm. And during that episode, so True Romance directed by Tony Scott, uh, this movie that we're watching tonight, Unstoppable, directed by Tony Scott. And during our True Romance podcast, we talked about some of Tony Scott's work. And I said, oh, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? And when I said, have you seen Unstoppable? You said no. And I said, we're going to have to do that on a future show. And here we are doing it. And I also listened to our episode of The Great Escape we did a few weeks back. And during that show, you had talked about ensemble films and how much how many ensembles you really enjoyed and this and that. And you said, oh, you know, we're going to have to watch the Cannonball Run. That's a great Mm -hmm. ensemble movie. And we just did that one, too. So it was almost like 
we were prophesizing yeah. what's coming next. Yeah. So I, I thought I that was good on, yeah. because often we'll say like, oh, hey, that was a great movie. We'll have to do that on a future show. And then we never get around to it. So I was kind of interesting to to hear us off the cuff say we should do that. And then we actually did it. We follow. Look at that. We followed through for once. So I, if my wife's listening, I actually said I was going to do something and I did it for once. <laughs> What what does the podcast sound like? Does it sound good? Like I just, I just I like to think it sounds good. I, we we ramble a little bit too much sometimes, yeah. but uh, you know it is what it is. Okay, so, so, so why this movie? movie? Okay, so for a number of reasons. First of all, it's by one of my favorite directors, Tony Scott. We've already done Man on Fire, which is by Tony Scott, and we've done um, we just did True Romance, which is by Tony Scott. And I want to say we did one other one and I can't think of it right now, but it'll come to me, I'm sure. And then this one, we're going to we'll, we'll probably end up getting through most of Tony Scott's films by the time we uh, by the time we finish their, our podcasts, because, uh, you know, I think he's great. And I've I've seen all his movies and I certainly want to have give you an opportunity to see as many of them as you can. Uh, and if you're not going to watch them on your own, I'm going to f- force you to watch them as part of this podcast. <laughs> sure. okay. And he did, he did Beverly Hills Cop 2, which we we did Beverly Hills Cop 1 recently. But I think we both agreed that at some future point, we'll probably do part yeah. two. So, OK, so it there was, was that. Okay. Yeah. Secondly, I this is just one of those movies that I find is fun. So I, I obviously want to try and introduce you to movies that are newer definitely past your 1989 threshold Mm -hmm. but i wanted i always try and find something that's like from 2000 and onward and anything i can find that's sort of 2010 and onward is like is gravy it's bonus because i know that the really new stuff you just you don't have an opportunity to watch partly because you have young kids partly because you're resistant to change but this is one of those ones that mostly because i'm resistant to change yeah well you know (laughs) yeah for sure again draw your own conclusions but i think that one's a pretty straight line so I know this is one that you probably would not watch on your own. Uh, It's one of those ones that is on TV pretty frequently. It's one of these ones that because it's on TV so frequently, I've seen it. I think if I say 10 times, if the over and under is 10, it's probably over, but it's probably around 10. And that's not to say that I've sat start to finish 10 times, start to finish. I've maybe seen it three or four times, but there's enough action scenes in it, like interesting scenes, high octane scenes. And I'm like, okay, I know the scene is coming up. I'm going to watch just till the end of that. And then I'm going to go on doing whatever it was I was doing. And this movie's not going to win any Oscars. It's not that kind of movie. It's a, a, you know, someone was asking me to describe and I said, it's sort of a thriller slash action movie. It's, it's about a runaway train. So you sort of know where it's going to go, or you think you know where it's going to go. There's only so much you can do with this premise, but it's still a pretty fun 90, hundred minute premise. So I thought, you know what? Let's give it a watch. I hadn't seen it in six to eight months. I mean, honestly, I, I've seen it in the last year for sure. But it's uh, it's one of those ones that I know I enjoy every time it comes on. So I thought, let's just let's just do it. Let's let's uh, let's get this one under our belt. And I was kind of hoping you might enjoy it. I know sometimes you're you're definitely looking for more of that artsy fartsy kind of you know this is this is art. This is a great film. But from time to time, we do things like the Cannonball Run, where it's just this is just <laughs> yeah. a fun movie. And that's sort of where this one falls for me. It's like, I just feel this is a fun movie. It's uh, it's something that I enjoyed and it's something I continue to enjoy. And I, I want to share it with you. And if you liked it, great. And if you didn't like it, well, you're wrong. But mm-hmm. in any case, that's where we are. Okay. So I agree with you. It was, it was fun. 
this movie was fun to watch. It was it was a, it was definitely sort of a popcorn movie. There wasn't a lot, yes. you know, of substance to it, but it was it was fun to watch. I was able to get it on Disney Plus, and and that got me thinking because Disney Plus is obviously they're starting to add some movies that have some profanity, you know, and and violence. Um, maybe they're expanding their uh, their target market. I don't know. Maybe want to give Netflix a run for their money or something. But um, as as I've mentioned before on the podcast, when it comes to watching movies here on the show, my wife either just goes to bed or she falls asleep halfway through the movie. <laughs> but not yeah. this time. She actually stayed up and watched the whole movie with me. But oh. the thing is, it wasn't because of the action or the pace or the plot. No, no, Derek. It's Chris Pine. It was Chris Pine. Yeah. She's like, oh, this guy's in it. Well, I guess I'll watch it. <laughs> so this is the only movie she hasn't fallen asleep during. So I, I, I guess, you know, watching movies and TV shows with my wife, it's a little bit of a blow to the ego because between Chris Pine being hot and Charlie Hunnam's butt on Sons of Anarchy, you know, I don't know. Although I guess it makes up for the... Gen X boob fest movies I make her watch. So I guess that's it's all fair. Watch. That's yeah, fair. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, okay. So this movie uh, is directed by Tony Scott starring Denzel Washington, the, the aforementioned Chris Pine, <laughs> the worst. I hate that guy. Um, and <laughs> Rosario Dawson. It had a budget of 85 million. It didn't make its budget back in the U S domestic box office. Not, made, not in the box office. No. Not initially. No, no it made 81 million domestically, but with worldwide grosses, it took in 168 million. Um, it finished 41st at the box office in 2010. So I like to go back and look at, you know, the box office from, from the years that we do this. So it was outperformed by such luminaries, Derek, as Dear John, The Other Guys, The Town, and Due Date. <laughs> hey, The Town was really good. Don't really? knock that one. Okay. Um, but other movies that did well that, that year were... Get a load of this. The Karate Kid, Clash of the Titans, Tron, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Wall Street, and The A-Team. 2010. Nice. If you didn't know any better, you'd think it was in the 80s. You know? All those yeah. kind of titles. Jeez, oh, Hollywood. Um, but anyway, so this movie is, it's apparently based on true events because there was a statement at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. And... I mean, they changed some of the details. Instead of Scranton, Pennsylvania, it's Stanton. Because my yeah. wife was like, is there a Stanton in Pennsylvania? Like, didn't no, we go there no. once? I'm like, no, no, honey. That was Scranton. Yeah. You know, they, she, she didn't believe me. Like, I don't know. Maybe she was just distracted by Chris Pine's stupid, beautiful face. I don't know. It's not that I'm bitter or anything. Jealous much? Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway. And, um, and like you were saying, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. The, um, the, in, the, in the movie, the runaway train is, is number 777. And in real life, the runaway train was number 888. So again, it's those parallels to reality where they sort of borrow from the original story mm -hmm. to give it some authenticity. But at the same time, it's like with uh, Back to the Future. When they say, well, why did the DeLorean have to go 88 miles an hour? And they're like, because it's a nice, easy number to remember. So same thing with the runaway train. They had to make the runaway train's number something easy to remember. So 777. Uh, I want to talk about the director because you, you brought him up. So Tony Scott, he's the brother of Ridley Scott. Pretty damn fine director in his own right. Um, I think 
A lot of people think of Ridley Scott as the more talented director, but Derek, you've made it pretty clear that Tony Scott is one of your favorite directors of all time. He clocked in at number two on your list of best directors back when we did that episode uh, on episode 140. Um, in case anyone wants to go back and, you know, listen to our, our top five directors list. Uh, but Derek, you obviously, you, you love Tony Scott. Um, maybe you can explain a little bit about what exactly it is about him, maybe in his movie style, you know, that you like so much. Well, and I think we had this discussion a little bit when we did Man on Fire. And I think Man on Fire was sort of a better example of of Tony Scott at his best. And I think you asked me that on a previous one. You're like, if you had to pick, what would what would you say is his best film, or what would you say is your favorite movie by Tony Scott? And for me, that's that's Man on Fire all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find that with a lot of directors, they in my mind, it's it's a very binary option. They either know how to make a good movie or they don't know how to make a good movie. And that's not to necessarily even say that it's a it's a good movie in the sense of this is going to win an Oscar good movie as much as it's just enjoyable entertainment. Like Michael Bay is a, is an as a director that for the most part I think he knows how to make a good movie. He makes blockbuster films with explosions and like he has a style and if you know that and that's something you enjoy, then when the next movie by that director comes out, you're like it's probably going to be more of the same. I'm just going to give him the benefit of the doubt and go see it. And I mean, that's the same with Ridley Scott or with uh, any of the newer directors that that are working. You know, uh, Christopher Nolan puts out a movie. If you're like, you know, I liked Batman. I liked Inception. I liked the prestige. You're like, hey, he's got a new one. You know what? I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because he knows how to make a good movie. Tony Scott was one of those for me. He had enough in his resume that I liked. He did Top Gun. He did Beverly Hills Cop 2. You know, he did Enemy of the State. He did True Romance. So it's like it comes time for movies like man on fire and unstoppable. I'm like, I'm in, I'm all in. Like I've, I've enjoyed the vast majority of their body of work, which is not to say that they don't have misfires. Every artist has some misfires. Every director has a few stinkers in their resume. Even Steven Spielberg has some pretty big stinkers in his resume, but you hold up Schindler's list, Jaws, Jurassic park, ET. And you know, that guy knows how to make a movie despite a couple of stinkers. And I'm not saying Tony Scott's as good as Steven Spielberg, they're not even in the same league. Very few directors are ever going to be in the same league as Steven Spielberg. But I think Tony Scott has a, an interesting style. He has an interesting way to set uh, the pacing of his movies. He has a lot of movies where, uh, you know, the pacing is a very important part in the kind of movies he tends to make. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, not being a director or a movie person myself, I, I don't necessarily have the vocabulary. I'm pulling you antsy. I don't have the right words to describe what I'm trying to say, but I enjoy his work. I've enjoyed, uh, you know, I, I, it's unfortunate that uh, that he's no longer with us, so we're not going to get any new work from him. But uh, I find for the vast majority of his of his uh, IMDb credits, I've liked just about everything I've ever seen by him. Mm. Um, not OK. So for me coming into this, not knowing a lot of his work like you do, one of the things I noticed was his style has a lot to do with momentum. Yes. Like, like it's not just how he shoots the script, you know, and paces the plot. But he uses this kind of frenetic shooting style. He uses wipes across the frame and he's got these quick zooms and pans and he edits shots together from multiple directions. And the other thing is he seems to like to tell a story from different points of view, sometimes all at the same time. Yeah, it's definitely true in this movie. Um, And he has the um, the unique distinction, Derek, of directing one of the few movies that you've dominated on this podcast that I've actually loved. And that was 93's True Romance, which you mentioned. And we covered that yep. back on episode 173. Um, he he died very young. He was 68 
and he died by suicide from jumping off the um, the Vincent Thomas Bridge in Long Beach, California. Mm-hmm. But like you mentioned, he left behind a, a legacy of some really, really good movies, you know. And, you know, I mentioned this in when we did the True Romance uh, episode. He started his Hollywood career with uh, The Hunger back in 1983. Yeah. And... That is one hell of a bold way to start your directing career. And like you mentioned, he did Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2. And I, I think it's well, safe. And he, to... and he was a producer. Like he was yep. a prolific, especially later. Like he produced uh, the, the his production company, Scott Free, or uh, yeah, Scott Free, which is, a, 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 I believe, is a joint with him and his brother, Ridley Scott and Tony Scott, hence the Scott Free part of it. Um, they, they have co a ton of stuff so like again i'm just looking at some of his things like the tv series the good wife they were executive producers on all the episodes um you know there's a number of mini series that ran that they did the tv show numbers that ran for six seasons they did over 100 episodes of that um you know there's a lot of good television like uh series and mini series that they've done and then there's a handful of movies that they may not have directed but they're they were producers like again the a team is one you just mentioned a minute ago they produced that taking a pelham one two three another movie about a train the remake they did that so there's there's a lot of good stuff on his resume despite the fact that uh you know he took his own life due to depression and i want to say it was 2012 mm-hmm. yeah i believe it was and and you know like I, I, I want to say thanks to you for kind of opening my eyes a bit to some of his work because otherwise I probably wouldn't have explored a lot of it. So <laughs> I, I think he's one of the better directors, you know, that Hollywood's ever had. Like he really is. He's. I don't know if I'd be quite as high as you were. Like I wouldn't rank him number two. No, that's fair. On my that's list, fair. but but he's quite good. Um. So I want to talk worked, about. The, yeah. So I was going to say he works. He's worked with Denzel. He worked with Denzel Washington on five different feature films. And again, like with so many other uh, people in in the movie making industry, people tend to work with people they've they mm-hmm. know that they like that they yeah. worked with before that get a good reco. Um, I was listening to one of our older podcasts um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, or rather just this week, where we were doing one of the older trivia segments, and you were talking about Christopher Nolan and how he's worked with Michael Caine. I think you said something like seven times. And Yancey was trying to come up with the seven movies that they had done together. And that's that's typical with uh, with uh, Tony Scott, too. He had his list of favorites. And if you look through, there's a lot of especially in the supporting roles. There's a lot of people that appeared in many of his movies over and over and over again. And it's clear that he had an eye for talent. I mean, Denzel Washington, one of the most talented people working in Hollywood. Um, obviously, the two of them got along really well. And um yeah, I think again, I think that speaks to the ability of the director to get actors of that caliber that want to keep working with you. They obviously feel you know what you're doing as well. So anyway, yeah, sorry, you find, I cut you off. No, but you find that a lot, like where directors like to work with, you know, actors like um, uh, Martin Scorsese worked with De Niro for years, and then he oh yeah, DiCaprio. Sure. You know, so that's a, that's a good point. Um, you mentioned Denzel Washington. What can you say about this guy? Like, I mean, the dude has got some acting chops. Um, he's definitely come a long way since Carbon Copy with George Seagal back in 1981. Uh, he's I was not- thinking St. Elsewhere myself. That's okay. where I was. No, I'm going first. all the way back to 81, to okay. Carbon Copy. Uh, he's been nominated for eight Academy Awards. He wow. won two of them. He won for Glory in 89 and then again for Training Day in 2001. He was I, superb in Training Day. He was so good. Yeah, and, oh, he was good in that. Uh, we'll have met, to do that on a future podcast. That's a great movie. Yeah, I watched that uh, one time. 
you know, uh, it was quite good. Um, you mentioned he's worked with Tony Scott multiple times. Um, he brings a level of professionalism and almost gravitas to any mm-hmm. movie he's in, except maybe for Carbon Copy, you know, but we'll give him a pass for that one. Okay. <laughs> but but he does a really good job here in this movie. Um, and it's interesting. Sorry, he, I was going to, let me interrupt. Yeah. He does, so to, to piggyback on that, not only does he do a good job, but he spends the majority of the movie in one spot. They're in the cab of the of the locomotive, and he's literally sitting down for the majority of his screen time. And that has got to be a difficult performance for any actor that day after day, you're going to be in the same scene, on the same set, you, you're going to be in the same clothes, because it's all supposed to take place in you know just a few hours of the same day. And yet you still have to perform. And I, I've got to think that that's exceptionally difficult to do well. It, it, it really comes down to the way you use your voice, the way you, you you use your facial gesture and your expressions. Like, And that's part of what, what Denzel Washington is known for is, is being able to – the different intonations of his voice and expressing emotion through his voice work. But again, just the facial expressions, It's he's just so good in so many levels given that he had such limitations the way this role was was played out. And that's a, that's a good point. And not only does he have to do a lot of his acting it from one place, but he's he's also the co-hero, you know, so he doesn't get to hog the limelight. You know, he has yeah. to share, share it with Chris Pine. Right. And it, it, he does a good job of that. I mean, Tony Scott seems to give his characters a bit of subtext, you know, like any good director should. And he yeah. definitely does that here, like with their personal lives and things like that. And and, and speaking of Chris Pine again, um, again, I just, just don't like this guy. <laughs> no, so he was in that Star Trek remake that you made me watch. He's Captain Kirk in the new Star Trek movies. But other than that, I've never really seen him in anything. You know, he, he was in a great movie I watched recently called it was an older film before Star Trek called Bottle Shock about the California wine scene in the 1970s. And he was really good in that too. Well, and he, he wasn't in any movies before 1989. So how the hell would I ever see him? But uh, fair enough. I, I guess he's what's considered to be a good actor for this generation. Derek is, that um, it? he can hold his own. I mean, I, I don't think he's going to win an Oscar anytime soon, but uh, I mean, he's also Probably appeared fair. in the latest yeah. wonder woman films, but I assume for those, it's just, he's eye candy and he's there to, to be the, the male equivalent of the damsel in distress so that Wonder Woman can save him. So he's got to be pretty and hey, he's pretty. So fits the bill there. And and you mentioned damsel in distress, but the opposite of that, I think, is Rosario Dawson. So um, now she worked with Denzel Washington in Training Day, too. She she had significantly more clothes on this time around. Um, no, I don't think that was her. I think that was uh, Eva Mendes you're thinking of. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, she, but, but Zara Dawson is great. So she was, I thought she was really good in this movie. Um, I, I, she was, she was strong and it's not easy or can't be easy to work alongside Denzel. He's a legend, you know? And even though they don't share any screen time until the very end scene, I, I thought she did a really good job in this role. I liked her a lot. I thought she was good. So. Yeah, she's she's pretty talented. She's I think she's underrated. I think that um, you know she 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 is in a movie where there are very few female parts. Um, she brings a lot to the to the table, and and her role is pretty pivotal, right? She's the she's the the literal operator here. She's the 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 middle person 
uh, what we what we you know in the old days would call a middleman. She's the middle person between the management and the train, and she's the person who's relaying the information back and forth, and she's the one who's identifying the problems and trying to come up with the solutions. She's the essentially the handler of this film, and she's the center point where all the other characters interact, and and all of the information comes through her, and it's it's an important role. And given that there are so few female characters in this film, it's uh, I was glad to see that. This was the one that, you know, if you're going to put a woman in one of the roles, this, you know, if she can't be in the train, which I I mean, she totally could have been one of those two characters in the train could have been a dude, especially the Chris Pine one could have been a woman. Um, This was a good, uh, a good secondary choice. So, yeah, I think you're right. She wasn't the one that was naked in the training day movie with him, Um, but she was in. um, Was it the remake of Josie and the Pussycats or something like that? I don't, don't, honestly, I'm not that familiar with her her resume. I know she was in Clerks 2. I know she was in uh, the Marvel Universe. uh, I think she was in the Daredevil uh, TV series on Netflix, if I remember correctly. Um, Yeah, Daredevil, Luke Cage, Defenders, Iron Fist. One other actor I want to mention is Kevin Dunn. So he's the guy that plays Galvin. I recognized him right away. And he's one of those that guys, you know, those character yeah. actors you can't oh, I recognize plays, him, you know, I think he was the dad in the Transformers movie. He played, um, oh, he might have been. what's his name? Shia LaBeouf's dad in the Transformers film. That's where I, I remember from. But now that I'm looking up his IMDb, yeah, he was in the movie Dave with Kevin Klein. He, oh, was, yeah. in, he was in Mississippi Burning, a movie you mentioned, I think, just last week on the podcast. He was in that? Yes, he oh, was in, yes. he was in the Godzilla remake. The one from 98 with Matthew, the Matthew Broderick. Broderick one. Freaking millennials probably think that, that was that the original. It was terrible. Oh, yeah. But uh, like I say, like uh, people might think that's the original Godzilla. It's not, you know. But uh, that was 1954's Godzilla from Japan. But um, we'll have to maybe delve into that another time. But anyway, so Kevin Dunn, he was in the second episode ever of Seinfeld. He was Jerry's old friend, Joel Hornick. Remember, Jerry doesn't want to meet up with him. I honestly, I'm not a big Seinfeld fan, and I never oh, really yeah, watched right. the show. You know, like, I, I've come to it lately in reruns, and even then, I've probably seen about a third of the episodes. So I think where I remember him the best one from was Cheers. He played a bar regular, Jim McNulty. I used to love Cheers. Man, that was a good show. Um, but anyway, so the movie itself. So at the beginning of the movie, this a couple a couple of things. So the train operator jumps out to like throw a switch or something like yeah. that, you know, and he full throttles the train because it's, 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 it's a really long train. It's very heavy and he needs to get it kind of up and moving. So he puts it on, you know, full speed to, to overcome the inertia or whatever. And yeah. then he, he can't catch up to the stairs, you know, to go up to the engine car. So, so my question was at this point, the train's still going like super slow. It's you know, just getting moving. Why not just jump on the side stairs of like the second or the third car and then just walk between the cars to the engine and take the wheel? Yeah, I thought of that, too. And given that I've seen it a few times, I think I I think I have an answer for you because I figured you would ask that question. Mm -hmm. So if you recall, before he left the train, he moved one of the switches to what I assume was something of a break or a neutral sort of position so that it would keep moving, but not gain speed. And then when he jumps out, the train sort of shuffles a bit and you see the, the, the control knob changes gears and he's unaware that it's changed gears. 
So I think what we're supposed to understand how, and again, it's based on loosely based on true events. So this may have been what actually happened was his expectation was the train is running in neutral. It's not expected to go very much faster. I can easily get out, flip the switch, get back in. Cause if I just, if I stop it for real Z, stop it and do this, it's going to take a lot of time. And they've already established that this guy's kind of a screw up and a jerk off and they've been dilly dallying around. And so he's behind schedule. So he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to lose time. So in order to save time and take this shortcut, he puts it in neutral. He jumps out, flips a switch, expecting it to jump back in. Now he can't catch up to the train, partly because he's overweight and out of shape. I believe that in his mind, he believes this train is in neutral. It'll roll down the tracks a little farther and then eventually it'll just slow itself down because it's not under power. What we learn not long after that is it is indeed under power and now we have the whole point of the movie is this train is in full throttle. The brakes have not been applied as he thought they had and it's a runaway train. So that's the only logical reason I could think of for why he wouldn't have just jumped on the second car or the third car or shouted to all those other people who were standing around laughing at him. Hey, it's a runaway train. Somebody jump on board. I don't think that they believed that it was under power and they they assumed eventually it would just slow down enough and stop. Okay, so you mentioned runaway train. Um, this is not the first movie ever about a runaway train. And it's not even Tony Scott's first movie about a runaway train because he made... The Taking of Pelham 123, the year before this came out. And mm -hmm. there was a movie that was actually called Runaway Train. Uh, I never saw it, but um, it starred John Voight and Eric Roberts. John Voight was nominated for a Best Actor Oscar, and Eric Roberts was nominated for Best Supporting Actor back in 1985 for that movie. And then there was a movie called Silver Streak back in 76, Oh, that sounds familiar. I might have seen that one. It was the first movie with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Man, oh, that's why I've seen they it. They were yeah. so good together. Stir Crazy is, it's still one I got to have us do on the podcast here. I watched that like in the last year. It was not as great as I remembered it being. <clears throat> this should be interesting. I remember watching a movie when I was a kid called The Cassandra Crossing. And although I think the train might have been hijacked by terrorists or something like that in that one, you know, instead of just being like an unmanned runaway train. But but anyway, this whole concept has been explored, obviously, before. But I, I feel this one was entertaining. Like, But the thing is, this movie to me is a bit like Chinese food. You know, it, it's great while you're, you're, you're doing it, but afterward you're like hungry for more. You know, yeah, it was good, but it was and that's of, fair. It was kind of forgettable a bit. I don't know. So I, I think you described it accurately at the beginning by saying it's like it's a popcorn movie. It's a yeah. it's a thriller. It's a blockbuster kind of I'm just going in. I turn my brain off. I want to be entertained. Here's this thriller movie about this runaway train. Oh, my God, it might crash into stuff and people could get hurt. And that's terrible. And, and along the way, there are these little sequences where, oh, it smashes into a, a horse drawn, a, a carriage for drawing horses. Oh, it smashes. They try and derail it and it just smashes that thing. Oh, it, it smashes the last few cars of the train that can't quite get into the switch fast enough. And you're like, oh my God, this is terrible. Oh, it's, it's hauling hazardous chemicals. And if it hits stuff, it could blow up and people will die. And oh my God. And so you have that whole 
um, buildup of, oh my God, this could be this disaster and it could, it keeps getting worse and worse. And every time they try and stop it, things go wrong. They put another train in front of it to slow it down and that blows up. And then they have a guy in a helicopter and he can't get on. It's like, oh my God, what's going to happen? And then, you know, without ruining it, but of course ruining it, eventually the heroes catch up and they stop the train and all the rest of that good stuff. But knowing and expecting that's how it's going to end, it's still a pretty thrilling 90 minutes to get there. And I yeah, enjoy it, it every time. Yeah, yeah, it is. I have some questions, though, as, as always. You alluded to this earlier. Okay, so first of all, um, you're my go-to guy on this, Derek. So you're going to, okay. you know, Kevin Dunn's character, I mentioned Galvin. Yes. Why, why wouldn't he at least let them try and hook up to stop the train? Like, I, I understand it's a plot point. I have the absolute answer for you. And the corporate guy is always the bad guy, right? But like, what what harm was there in at least letting them try? Do you want to know the answer? Yes. Old white guys are stupid. Yes. And old white guys think they're always right. And especially when a woman's voice is telling you not to do it, of course the old white guy's not going to do it. That's just the way things have been for so long. And even though this movie is 11 years old, the people that wrote it, produced it, and directed it knew enough that this is an easy way to demonstrate to the audience that this this old white guy who's in charge of this uh, this train company is every bit as typical as every other old white guy, and he's just going to do what's best in his mind, and he's not going to accept opinions or answers from anybody that isn't like him. And that may not be entirely true, but I think we can probably draw that conclusion pretty accurately. And I think this movie does a good job of of sort of playing some of the 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 standard tropes of these kinds of movies you have the person played by rosario dawson who is doing the right thing for the right reasons i care about the people i care about the the lives that could be lost i'm recommending a course of action that will resolve our problem despite the fact that it may cost the company money because it will save lives and on the other hand you have the corporate people how much will this devaluate our stock? And we have to have a meeting about this. And did you notice in that meeting, again, it was 10 people and they were all old white guys. Uh, you know, and, and that's typical of these kinds of movies. Who's making the decision? The people that have the power and have the money. And who's coming up with the great ideas? It's the woman on the phone and it's the man of color behind the train. But you can't listen to those people because they're different than me. And I'm an old white guy. I must clearly know the right thing. And I think this movie does it without doing it too bluntly, but sort of like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't mm -hmm. necessarily know if these were conscious decisions they made when they made the movie, but it definitely is reflective of the way it's been for a long time. And it's a good way to point out that just cause you're an old white rich guy doesn't mean, you know, everything. And there's a lot of times that other people can have great ideas and you should listen to them from time to time. That's an interesting point because there always seems to be one character in a movie like this that nobody listens to and they plead and plead and they, they try to do what's right. No one ever listens. And I, I get that it's a, you know, a strong plot point, you know, and that's why the screenwriters do it. But something you brought up that I think is worth just discussing is that they often cast a, a woman or a person of color in this kind of role. And maybe it's just me, but I'm not sure the reasoning, what, but it, it always seems that this character's right, you know, or at least trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And no one listens. And it, it causes all drama for the plot. I get it. But like, I'm thinking of like Yafit Kodo and Sigourney Weaver and Alien. 
Mm-hmm. And there's always like corporate executive type. Remember when we you had me watch Aliens? And yeah. Paul Reiser, you know, yep. or, or Kevin Dunn in this movie, you know, and 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 for here, it's almost like Rosario Dawson kind of takes on that role too, you know, as well as as Denzel. But anyway, it's, it's a trend that I've noticed, and and you've touched on in these action movies. It, it's an effective plot point, but it's it's I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. I, I think it's reflective of an unconscious bias. It's, yeah. it's, or maybe even not so unconscious. I think in some cases, in some of the movies, especially the more recent movies that we've talked about, it's more of a deliberate choice to make a point. Mm-hmm. But I think in some of the movies that are a little bit older, but not like 70s and 80s, it's more of a unconscious bias kind of thing where it they do it that way because they realize that it's going to evoke a certain emotional response from your audience. Maybe not realizing why at the time, but you look back at it 10 years later and you go, yeah, that's why. And it's it's, uh, you know, again, we've got the a lot of different dichotomies going on here. You've got the um, the corporation wanting to do one thing. And the person who, in this case, played by Rosario Dawson, has ideas for how to solve the problem, despite the it's completely devoid of dollars and cents being weighed into the decision, going more for the loss of life or the absence of loss of life by doing a certain course of action. And same with the train. You've got the rookie and you've got the experienced guy. Well, you got the rookie who's saying, no, we shouldn't do this. Oh, we should pull into the first sidetrack. And you got the experienced guy saying, the manual tells you this thing, but my life experience has taught me this other thing. And you have to trust that I am the teacher in this scenario and I know what I'm talking about. And don't pull rank on me simply because you you know you are the guy with the last name who has the connections who's the new hot commodity like you have to trust that i know what i'm talking about and and you see this kind of things play out in a lot of movies and and i think this film does uh lean on those tropes a lot and i think it but it leans on them in the in all the right ways Mm -hmm. okay so just two more things i want to just touch base on before we wrap it up uh one thing i noticed was there's this roar sound that you hear when the train's barreling down the tracks. Yep. Not just the sound of the train, but it's like this overdub thing. Yes. And it's like this ominous roar. And it reminded me, you remember that Steven Spielberg made for TV movie Duel? Did you ever hear about I know that? of it, but okay. I've never seen it. So at the end of that movie, when the truck barrels over the side of the cliff, there's this ominous roar. Hey, hey, sound. spoiler alert. I've never, I just said I've never seen it. Well, it's it's from like 73. So, okay. I mean, you know, um, <laughs> if you haven't seen it by now. But then Spielberg used the same sound, the exact same sound at the end of Jaws, when the shark is like sinking to the bottom of the ocean after it gets its head blown off. And for me, being a huge Jaws fan, it felt like it sounded like the exact same sound here when the train's rolling along. They put yeah. it in more than once. Like it's probably yep. like five or six times. So anyway, yep. that, that was one thing I noticed. I, I read that in the trivia that that was a deliberate choice by the director to use animal sounds or things that sounded like animal sounds to make the train mm. seem more threatening. So you're absolutely right in your in your cool. auditory observation. I want to talk about the ending. So for the final yeah. scene, which was very tense, by the way. Yep. So again, kudos to Tony Scott because yep. you know he pulled off a lot of tense. Yeah, I mean, you know how it has to end, right? It's like yeah. 
if it doesn't end with a happy ending, it ends with millions of people dying in a fiery explosion and you're not going to end a movie that way. So you know how it, it's like watching Apollo 13 and going, well, I hope the astronauts make it home safe. It's like, well, the movie would kind of suck if they didn't, but you still watch that movie and the ending still has you on the edge of your seat. This is the same idea. You know how it has to end. You know, there's only five minutes left. You know exactly where the movie's going to go, but it's still thrilling to get there. But like you said, it's it's pretty edge of your seat stuff. You know, like it really was. When Chris Pine jumps across and gets into the engine room and then he gets control of the train and then he stops it. So I got I to gotta confess, I was totally expecting something else to happen at this point. Like there seems to be a tendency in Hollywood movies, you know, lately for the end to not be the end. If you so like Die Hard. Where yeah, at yeah. the last minute the guy shows up and tries to shoot them again. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's no, like I know a exactly. False ending, you know, or yeah. misdirect or whatever. Yep. And you know, more than once, you know, you've seen, you know, where a movie gets to the end and then you think it's over and it's not. So, like, I was thinking, like, Chris Pine, you know, jumps into the engine car, and then I would have just loved for him to say, I, "I'm a rookie. I just started." I only got this job because of my uncle. I, I don't know how to drive this thing, you know, or something like that. Yeah. Or, or he gets in and he stops the train and then like something else happens. You know, yeah. all of a sudden that like the, the train goes into autopilot and restarts or, or, you know, the, the train stops and the, the, the freight car with the, all the explosives, I don't know, like it keels over or something like that. And they have to, you know, you know, panic to, to make it all happen. So, um, I was, was going to also mention, too, we're watching the end of the movie, and it's, like, super tense, just like we mentioned. And Chris Pine's in the back of that pickup truck, and he's going yeah. to jump over onto the train. Yeah. My yeah. wife accidentally turned off the TV. Oh, <laughs> like, she sat on the remote or something like that. Derek, I like it better when she falls asleep, but don't tell her. <laughs> <laughs> anyway... So overall, I, I thought the movie was pretty good. Do you want to rate it out of 10, Derek? I'd give it a 7 or 7.5, depending on the day of the week. It's, again, I love the cast. I love the director. Mm-hmm. It's just a fun movie. It's not going to win an Oscar, but it it knows its lane. And it's, well, I mean, when you're on tracks, you have to stay in your lane. But it knows its lane. It yeah. stays in its lane. It delivers the kind of thing I expected to deliver, given the kind of movie it is. I've seen it a bunch of times. I feel it's got a rewatchability factor for me anyway, even though I know how it's going to end. I'm I'm thrilled to watch it over and over again. I'm going to say I'm going to give it a seven. Solid seven. You and me are on the same page. I would give it a seven. I thought it was pretty suspenseful in parts. Uh, it, it kept you riveted, but it was also a movie that you're likely to forget about after a while. Like, I don't think it'll be considered a modern classic or anything. No, but, no, I don't. But it's don't a lot of fun so. to watch. You know, it is. It so is. And I'm glad seven. you I'm yeah. glad you enjoyed it. I'm yeah. glad you had a chance to watch it. And yeah. like I said, being that it's by one of my favorite directors, I'm glad that I was able to introduce you to it. But of all of the movies by Tony Scott, if someone said to me, you know, you've got the entire Tony Scott library to go back and rewatch a movie. This is never going to be the first one I go back to watch. I'm going to watch Beverly Hills Cop 2. I'm going to watch Man on Fire. I'm going to watch True Romance. I think he's got a lot of other movies in his library that I would go to before I go to this one for a rewatch. But if you've never seen this one. I'm certainly going to recommend it. Yeah. Okay. On that, let's have some fun with Caveman. All right, Derek. I like to keep things pretty simple 
you know, okay. when, when it comes to having some trivia fun. So one thing that I like to do, as you've probably noticed, um, I like to have a bit of a common thread, okay. you know, through all the answers. So here we go. So Derek, we've done this before. I'm going to give you the year and the synopsis. And all you have to do is name the movie. Okay. okay. So the common thread here tonight is all the movie titles begin with the letters UN. Just okay. Like unstoppable. Okay. So okay. all these movies begin with un. Okay. Okay. So now, now there could be a the in front of it. Just that's keep fair. That in mind, that's okay? fair. Okay. All right. So you ready? Yes. All right. 1987. During the era of prohibition in the United States, federal agent Elliot Ness sets out to stop ruthless Chicago gangster Al Capone and because of rampant corruption, assembles a small handpicked team to help him. That was The Untouchables. It was The Untouchables. Okay, 1992. Retired Old West gunslinger William Money reluctantly takes on one last job with the help of his old partner Ned Logan and a young man... The Schofield Kid. I love this movie. Unforgiven. Chris, have you seen Unforgiven? I have not. Really? Yeah. It's it's a little slow, but man, is it good. Okay. You're doing really well. Okay, so 1989. A bachelor and all-around slob babysits his brother's rebellious teenage daughter and her cute younger brother and sister. Wow, that doesn't even sound familiar, and it's got un in it. Uncle, oh, Uncle Buck. Very good, yes. Okay, this is uh, more into your wheelhouse. 2006, a real-time account of the events on one of the planes hijacked on September the 11th, 2001, that crashed near Shanksville, Pennsylvania, when passengers foiled the terrorist plot. Uh, this I've never seen it, but I've heard it's excellent. It was um, United ninety three, I believe, is the title. Very good. Nineteen ninety three. A waitress hardly notices a shy busboy who secretly loves her, until one night she's attacked and he comes to her rescue. From there, a relationship sparks, but one secret could mean disaster for these faded lovers. Wow. Um, that does actually sound very familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm never, I'm not going to come up with it. I got to pass. It. You know, this it's untamed heart. I don't, I don't know that. Who's in that Christian Slater. We talked about it on the yeah, episode. Oh, I've never seen it. All right. 1992, two rival soldiers who were killed in Vietnam are brought back to life in a top secret military experiment that creates superhuman warriors. Was this uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme and uh, and Dolph Lundgren in Universal Soldier? Jean-Claude Van Damme, you nailed that one. Okay. never. I've never seen it, but Me I know what it's... Okay. Yeah. 2000, a man learns something extraordinary about himself after a devastating accident. That was one we did on our podcast. That was Unbreakable. 
Not only did we do this on the podcast, this was the very first movie that you had me watch after you joined the podcast. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 1981. A visiting dignitary, a CIA agent, a Nazi spy, Japanese tourists, an assassin, and a group of midget actors from The Wizard of Oz all check into an elite Los Angeles hotel during the making of the 1939 movie classic. Wow. I I don't know what it is, but I'm going to have to watch it. What's it called? It's Under the Rainbow. Wow. No, I've never heard of it. Have you seen it? it? It's it's with, yeah, I I saw it in movie theater when it came out. It was Chevy Chase and, um, and Carrie Fisher. And, and I love, I got this uh, synopsis from uh, IMDb Uh and they, they use the word midget. Are you allowed to say that word? It's, I don't, I don't think Mm. we're allowed to say that. I don't know. I I don't know, but uh, that sounds fascinating. I'm going to have to go back and watch it. It was awful. It was so dumb. Okay, maybe not. It's so dumb. And it was a huge bomb. Okay. 1964. A poor, uneducated bound girl leaves her cabin in search of respect, a wealthy husband, and a better life in this fictionalized biopic of Margaret Brown, who survived the 1912 sinking of the RMS Titanic. I'm going to take a wild guess here because I have no idea. Was it the unsinkable Molly Brown? Well done. Okay. Wow. Total stab in the dark. Two more. You got this. 2002, a New York suburban couple's marriage goes dangerously awry when the wife indulges in an adulterous fling. Unlawful entry? (laughs) No. Unfaithful. Unfaithful. Diane Lane. Diane Lane? Yeah. Saw that in the theater, actually. Yeah. 1927 and again. Wow. In 1977. Okay. Broken and beaten to the point of no return, a sadistic plantation owner pushes his slaves to the point of rebellion. Wow. Uh, I have no idea. Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, geez. I had no idea that's what that was about. Yeah. I knew it was a whole slave and racism thing, but no idea. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't throw in Undercover Brother. Have yeah, I was thinking about one? doing that one. And there's oh. Undercover Brother 2 as well. They made a sequel out of that? Yeah, yeah, they did. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But anyway, so yeah, you did pretty good. You know, yeah, I missed pretty, a few, but. Yeah. So uh, next week, Derek, we're going to come back with a topic. So sure. we'll have to figure what that's going to be. And we'll decide that between now and, you know, next show. But uh, it was a lot of fun. I'm, I, 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 again, it wasn't a classic or anything, but Unstoppable, I thought it was pretty good. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. So uh, until next week, when we come back with uh, with something different, this is Chris McBride for Derek Meyer saying, thanks for listening to Pop Culture World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.